0: Welcome to The New Arab Voice, our podcast bringing you compelling stories and deep dives from the Middle East, Africa, Asia and beyond.
1: Hello and welcome to The New Arab Voice. It's Friday the 23rd of July and I'm your host, Hugo Goodrich, coming to you from London. This week, we delve into the economic crisis gripping Lebanon and ask how did they get here and where are they going next?
2: So the money has vanished. The money has evaporated. And today we don't even have more than three hours of electricity per day and governmental hospitals are closing down.
1: And then we remember British-Libyan artist, calligrapher, activist and writer Ali Omar Hermes, who passed away last week.
3: So Ali Omar stood up. Uh, I I never forget that meeting. He stood up and spoke really emotionally and uh, passionately about how important this cultural centre that we are hoping to create would be Mm. to everyone.
1: But first... It was revealed last week that Iran had attempted to kidnap an Iranian journalist living in New York. Joining us to discuss events is the new Arabs, Nick McAlpin. Hi, Nick. How are you doing?
4: I'm good, thanks, Hugo. How are you doing?
1: Very well, thank you. So who has Iran been targeting?
4: Well, the big story this past week or so, as you said, has been the attempted kidnapping of Iranian journalist Masih al in New York. So... Alina Jad has US citizenship and she's staunchly opposed to the Iranian authorities. Um, One of her main focuses being women's rights. Um, She founded the My Selfie Freedom Movement and that encourages women to remove their hijabs, given the Islamic Republic's mandatory veiling policy.
1: Um, And what are the details of the plot? How did this come about?
4: So the US Justice Department said Tehran had first tried to lure a kidnapping target known as Victim 1. To a third country to be taken from there to Iran. Uh, This failed and according to the department, an Iranian intelligence network then shifted to monitoring the victim and others living with her in Brooklyn, New York. The Justice Department claims this happened on multiple occasions in 2020 and 2021. So that's a direct quote. It's said that one of the men in this network researched ways of getting victim one to Iran from America. Um, Though it's important to note, that the Justice Department did not name Elina Jad. Um, that said, she was confirmed by Reuters as the would-be kidnapped victim and has spoken out about what's happened to her.
1: And how have the US reacted to the news of this kidnapping attempt?
4: The Justice Department said last week that four Iranian citizens connected to Tehran's intelligence apparatus have been charged with attempting to kidnap an American journalist. Obviously, that's Elina Jad. Uh, and the fifth person was also accused of financing the plot.
1: Uh, and, ha- and have any officials made any statements on it?
4: Anthony Blinken, uh, U.S. Secretary of State, uh, posted on Twitter and he said, Good conversation today with uh, Masih Alina Jad, uh, who has demonstrated tremendous courage. I affirm that the U.S. will always support the indispensable work of independent journalists around the world. We won't tolerate efforts to intimidate them or silence their voices. U.S. State Department spokesman Ned Price also made a statement to the press. Uh,
1: And let
3: me be very clear, we categorically condemn uh, this reported plot to kidnap a U.S. citizen on U.S. soil. There should be uh, no doubt about where uh, this administration, including the State Department,
1: stands. Uh, We will, as we have, uh,
3: forcefully defend...
1: Uh, You spoke this week to a source at a uh, UK-based Persian broadcaster. What, what were they saying to you?
4: So the source that I spoke with at Iran International, a station whose coverage is often quite critical of the Islamic Republic's government, that was very clear. So they said the is taking what happened in New York very seriously, uh, and that some of those working for them have been more worried uh, about their safety since what happened. Um, but the source said we also need to look at what happened uh, with Alina Jad in context. This is part of a broader pattern where the Islamic Republic tries to repress critical journalists. Uh, for example, the source mentioned the case of journalist Ruhullah Zam, who in 2019 was abducted from neighbouring Iraq, according to his wife. And, and tragically, Zam was eventually executed in December last year.
1: And, and what additional precautions are they taking to protect themselves?
4: Yeah, so my source said, uh, additional precautions are being taken for workers at Iran International, both while they're on the job and outside of it. But they also underline that the UK's security services do a lot to counteract uh, what they called state-based threats uh, and mention the Metropolitan Police's work. So the Met has an outreach programme for Iranians and keeps in frequent touch with them. Um, unfortunately, my source did say that the danger is often not actually in the UK per se. Uh, family members are commonly targeted in Iran in an effort to try and force journalists to go to a third-party country where they can be abducted.
1: Hmm. Uh, and while Iran is trying to uh, censor critics abroad, at home Iranians are taking to the streets and protesting. Um, what are they protesting about, and uh, where are they protesting?
4: The protests began in the southwestern Khuzestan province, uh, with citizens angered by severe droughts. Right now. Iran's experiencing its worst droughts for 50 years, and it's particularly bad for the country's agricultural workers. Since they started, the demonstrations have swelled, and now they include more robust criticism of the Iranian regime and of Supreme Leader Ayatollah Ali Khamenei. Uh, the affected region is also home to Iran's Arab minority, and they've long complained of being marginalised and discriminated against by the state.
1: How has the state reacted to these protests?
4: Yes, yeah, so they have moved to stop the protests with force. According to Amnesty International, security forces have killed at least eight protesters and bystanders, and that includes a teenage boy, in seven different cities across the province. Many others have been injured or arrested.
1: Have the protests been limited to the southwest of the country?
4: No. Since they've started, protests in solidarity of Khuzestan have also erupted at Tehran's metro system. Video posted to social media showed crowds of people at the Sadarghia metro station chanting, down to the Islamic Republic, down with Khamenei, down with the guardianship system, for example. Uh, and interestingly, in the video shared online, many of the chants were actually being led by women, um, which is obviously important to know.
1: Nick, thanks for joining us.
4: It's been my pleasure. Thank you, Hugo.
1: Lebanon is on the edge of an abyss. It's a phrase that's been used for well over a decade and by so many different people that it grew to become a cliché or even a running joke in the country. But there's a grain of truth in every joke.
2: What we can say is that this economic collapse was years in the making, if not decades in the making,
1: this is Karim Bitter, the director of the Institute of Political Science at Saint Joseph University of Beirut and a fellow at the Institute for International and Strategic Relations in Paris.
2: It was the consequence of unsustainable and disastrous economic, monetary and fiscal policies that go way back, that started in the 1990s, after the end of the Lebanese civil war.
1: Since then, corruption, political stagnation, kleptocracy, inequality and incompetence have ruled the country. And today, Lebanon is no longer on the edge of an abyss. The country has been pushed into the abyss and now nervously waits see what is at the bottom.
0: I am a Lebanese citizen and I sleep in the street, under the bridge. As a Lebanese, why am I living under the street? I come from the south and I live under the bridge. I was supportive of Nabih Berri, but in these conditions, I'm no longer with him. I want to fix my teeth and I can't. The young people are dying, isn't that wrong? What hope? What future? The future of this country is drugs, prostitution. What is this country?
1: So what caused the collapse in Lebanon? Who is to blame? And what does the future hold for the Lebanese people? Following the Lebanese civil war, the country was in ruins. It needed to rebuild everything. The buildings that had been destroyed but also the institutions that ran the country. One of the earliest economic blunders happened here. Karim Bittar again.
2: The economic model was focused quasi-exclusively on the financial and banking sector, on tourism, on the expatriates' remittances, and Lebanon completely neglected all its productive sectors. It neglected agriculture and industry. It could have been possible at the time to invest in the knowledge economy, to try to spend money on job creation.
1: This neglect was compounded with a further problem. Lebanon's banks, in conjunction with the political leaders, offered extremely high and enticing interest rates.
2: And when you have interest rates that are at this level, people no longer have an incentive to invest their money in productive sectors. So rather than building a startup or investing in industrial development or trying to contribute to the real economy, we in Lebanon encourage speculation Encourage keeping money in bank accounts and earning interest without using this uh, window of opportunity to invest and to build for a sustainable economy to plan for the future.
1: The neglect of vital industries and the high interest rates are the opening act in this tragedy. The final death blow delivered to Lebanon's economy which also leads us to the culprits of this economic crime scene, was wholesale theft on the part of the ruling political elites.
2: We have to realise that huge amounts were sent to Lebanon for 20 years and that they were basically siphoned by the Lebanese ruling parties.
1: It has been estimated that between 1993 and 2012, approximately $170 billion flowed into Lebanon.
4: This is roughly equivalent to the
2: entire amount that was spent by the United States after World War II when the Marshall Plan was put in place to help Western Europe get back on its feet. So the money has vanished. The money has evaporated. And today we... Don't even have more than three hours of electricity per day, and governmental hospitals are closing down. And it is an unprecedented humanitarian crisis to have to go back to World War I to see such a tragic
1: situation. The genesis of Lebanon's economic problems started in the 1990s, but truly erupted in 2019. There was no singular killing blow but rather death by a thousand cuts.
2: Sooner or later, this system was bound to implode. Obviously, the collapse was precipitated by the events that unfolded in Lebanon in the past five years, the consequences of the war in Syria, the consequences of Hezbollah being involved in the regional proxy wars, The economic collapse was also accelerated when uh, Prime Minister Saad Hariri was held hostage in Saudi Arabia. There was enormous capital flight after this incident and the Ponzi scheme ended up crumbling.
1: When the facade was lifted and the economic truth laid bare, the leading oligarchs in the country leapt into action to secure their personal wealth.
2: And in the absence of a law formalizing capital control, which is usually the very first thing you do when you are facing such a huge economic crisis, uh, some of the country's leading oligarchs were able to send their money abroad, according to the former director general of the Ministry of Finance, more than six billion U.S. dollars got out of the country after October 17, 2019.
1: The evacuation of huge amounts of funds at this critical juncture was the final blow. Today, the local currency has lost 90% of its value. Fuel is running out, prompting long queues at the pumps. Families are struggling to afford food, with prices rising by 700% over the past two years. Electricity blackouts, which were already a problem, have gotten even worse. Pharmacies have closed their doors as supplies dwindle to nothing. Subsidies on key goods have been lifted. Talented doctors, nurses, teachers and engineers are leaving the country and vital infrastructure like the internet, which has been starved of investment, is at risk.
2: What I used to buy for 10,000 is now 40,000, 50,000. There's no work. The dollar has affected everything. There are a lot of things we've eliminated from our lives. Everything. There's nothing specific, but the majority of things are too expensive to buy now. For example, we used to eat meat every other day, now we eat it once a month. There's no hope for the future. I'm a Syrian here in Lebanon, and there is no future. Lebanese citizens don't have a future. Syrians don't have a future. I would say that we have reached a stage where there is simply no other solution. There is no plan B. It is uh, absolutely fundamental that Lebanon opens negotiations with the International Monetary Fund. Lebanon needs a massive injection of cash a massive injection of US dollars, and it can only come from the International Monetary Fund.
1: The money that Lebanon so desperately needs exists. The IMF, or even the EU, can help, but only if the ruling political elites are willing to change.
2: Every single sector of this Lebanese economy is going to suffer unless uh, the ruling class puts its act together and rapidly forms a credible government uh, that commits to implementing these structural reforms, starting by the electricity reform, but also putting in place social safety nets, uh, negotiating with uh, the IMF, starting to think about the restructuring of the Lebanese uh, banking sector, otherwise uh, the worst is yet to come.
1: So in the face of mounting struggles and hopes that a corrupt kleptocracy might be able to change its ways, what does the future hold for the Lebanese people and what can they do?
2: Sooner or later... This phenomenon of state collapse, this economic crisis, uh, could very well lead to security incidents and to people starting to get involved in criminality or setting up local militias. So it will probably not be a full-fledged war. Of course, when you ask me what can the Lebanese citizens do, they can maintain pressure, They can lobby the international community uh, so that it no longer uh, gives money and a lifeline uh, to this establishment. And it is also very important for all Lebanese reformist political parties to also join forces.
1: And voices inside the country are increasingly calling for Lebanon's kleptocratic leaders to be hit where it hurts, right in the bank balance.
2: Many Lebanese have reached the conclusion that the only language that these guys understand is the language of sanctions. So today there are several initiatives in France, in Switzerland, soon in Great Britain, that are trying to demand accountability, starting with the governor of the central bank, who was Basically, the chief financial officer of this inter, uh, of this entire system.
4: You know what the problem is? The politicians don't empathize with the people. Because the politicians have electricity, water, fuel, and they have food and drink.
1: I've worked in their homes and in their villas. They're very comfortable. They don't empathize with anyone. If you're a politician, you have everything. You don't empathize with the people, you don't think of them.
3: (laughs) Empathize
1: with the people, just empathize with the people. Because really, I swear to God, we can't handle this. We can't handle this. People are in the streets being beaten and killed. The army is beating them. The police
2: are
3: beating them.
1: Removing from office political leaders who have created the current crisis will be a monumental task, something that Karim Bittar is all too aware of. Following the deadly explosion at the Beirut port, Karim, along with other revolutionary members of civil society, met with French President Emmanuel Macron, and requested that he support the creation of a transitional government with legislative powers. Unfortunately, for this to happen, it would have required the ruling elites to sacrifice themselves, which, predictably, they were not willing to do.
2: So what they said to the international community is that these revolutionary figures are probably decent, well-intentioned, educated men and women, But they do not have political legitimacy, whereas we as Lebanese, we might be Lebanese sectarian leaders, we might be incompetent, but we were elected only two years ago in 2018.
1: However, momentum for change has continued. At recent votes at universities, secular and reformist candidates have proved popular, winning many of the elections and at the end of June, an independent and grassroots movement claimed a sweeping victory in Beirut's engineer syndicate elections.
2: It was an impressive success, and uh, it was possible only because a wide coalition uh, was put in place, a coalition that included right-wing parties and left-wing parties, several movements, Reformist movements joined forces. So this Rainbow Coalition was able to make a significant breakthrough and traditional parties did not even compete because they realised that they were facing a
1: reformist wave. But it could be too early to say whether these wins will translate onto the national stage.
2: I'm not absolutely sure... That this momentum and that these results could be replicated at the legislative elections. If you go to the peripheral areas, to the remote areas in the South or in the North or in the Beka, you could see uh, such a momentum for reformist, secularist, progressive groups. So unless you manage to get into coalitions with local actors, who have their own constituency, it will uh, not be possible to uh, have a significant breakthrough at the legislative elections. We are talking about two completely different worlds.
0: Omar Emez was a Libyan-British contemporary artist, activist, and writer who sadly passed away early this month. Hailed as a visionary and pioneer, he was renowned for his vibrant and textured artwork, which often featured Arabic script and poetry. Many of his pieces spoke to a wider moral and philosophical theme, like love, loss, justice, and hope. For example, his acclaimed The Seventh Ode celebrated the seven odes of Arabic poetry, Born in the Libyan capital of Tripoli in 1945, Amir's travelled to the United Kingdom to study in Plymouth and later in London. During his career, he was part of more than 70 exhibitions worldwide. He was also involved with the World of Islam Festival in 1976 and published papers on Islamic heritage, faith and Arab identity. On top of this, he was a generous philanthropist, helping to found the Al-Manar Muslim Cultural Heritage Centre in North Kensington, London. I spoke to the current CEO of the centre, Abdurrahman Saeed. I began by asking him when he first met their and how they worked together.
3: When I met Ali Omar, Mr Ali Omar Hermes, and that was in 1992. And at the time I was a uh, student at university and I uh, was also a community activist, serving the local community. And uh, then the idea of... Um, Getting the two different Muslim communities uh, to come together uh, to set up the almanar came up, and uh, Ali Omar Hermes came as part of that, so we all joined the first committee that founded the Almanar and it was not easy. I think uh, the presence of Ali Omar Hermes made it a lot easier. Ali was a more mature and very like a confident person in bringing the community together and making them understand the shared values and the shared uh, goals that we can all achieve together.
0: And you said something interesting about him emphasising the commonality in that community, mm-hmm. bringing people together. Do you remember what he would say to kind of emphasise that, this idea of a shared community?
3: Yes, it was very hard to bring different Muslim communities from different ethnicities and geographical and cultural backgrounds And there wasn't a lot of shared projects and and work together prior to that time. Ali was very instrumental in bridging the the gap between the different communities. And uh, he could also speak very strong Arabic as well as English. People representing one ethnic group at the time, probably they felt they were the majority, wanted to have um, the center once it was approved and once completed to be exclusively theirs. We thought, oh, this is going to draw us back to square one and probably we will um, uh, miss the first criteria of getting this project on on the ground. So Ali Omar stood up. Uh, I I never forget that meeting. He stood up and spoke really emotionally and uh, passionately about how important this cultural centre that we are hoping to create would Mm. be to everyone.
0: From the research that I've done about him, it seems that so much of his life was governed by underlying moral philosophies and his art and his work did you get that impression as well absolutely that can kind of help to like explain why community was so important this idea of unification yes.
3: the last time I spoke to him was we're currently working on a, an endowment project and the endowment project is going to cost us uh, something around the region of 1.2 million pounds and we're quite stuck we're not anywhere near that uh, and especially with COVID-19 and so on so uh, but he was Willing to give any of his uh, paintings towards the Almanar. After he passed away, we had the um, what we call the Janaza prayer, which is the funeral prayer at the Almanar Mosque, which he set up himself, and. Uh, When we were telling people who knew him about his um, passing away, some of them started to send me messages saying how helpful he was when they were fundraising for this cause or for that um, emergency Mm -hmm. situation and so on. And I realized, I thought initially he was more involved with al probably some of his closest community. But I then realized that his uh, charity work was quite uh, widely uh, extended to others as well.
0: I'm sure you saw some of his work when you went to his house, but is there any of his work, like, over the centre? Yeah,
3: yeah, we do. <laughs> I think at uh, one it? here. Can I show it to you? <laughs> yes, please. Um, can you see that behind the flower? Wow. Can I move the flower? Uh,
0: yeah, go for it. Move the flower, I'll see it in okay. the
3: Okay. Yeah.
0: Um, let's see. Just, I, like, it's extraordinary how colourful Yeah, they so are. you
3: can yeah. see... That is one of his artwork, and it's in Arabic. It says hurr. Hur means a, a free person, a free man or a woman. And uh, you can see that how much he adored uh, freedom as well. So he was a very free person, free-spirited, and uh, yeah. longed for, I think, uh, freedom all the time.
0: For listeners who can't see the painting, the canvas was a deep, rich green colour with a bold, thick slash of black used to create the Arabic script. Omar Amez was born on January 1st 1945. He died on the 10th of July 2021. His artworks are collected by major art institutions across the world such as the British Museum in London, the Smithsonian Institution in Washington DC and the Bajil Arab Art Foundation in Sajjah.
1: Thank you for listening to The New Arab Voice. This episode was produced by myself and Rosie McCabe with additional help from Nick McAlpin, Will Christie, Naja Zatat and Kamal Afzali. Our theme music was by Omar Al-Phil. Stay tuned for the next episode of The New Arab Voice which will come out in two weeks' time. In the meantime, you can find all our previous episodes on all major podcast platforms. Don't forget to follow The New Arab on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram for the latest news from the region.